Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 31. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 31. A new beginning. As we typically do, let's start to read in the scripture. Verse 1. Meanwhile, as all the things are happening with the church, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, again, as we read along, I'll make some comments. So here, this is pretty much the first time you see this reference to those that are in the way or those that are identified with the way. And it seems to be that Christians were referring to themselves this way, but it's in keeping with John chapter 14, verse 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Christians, these early believers, the church, referred to themselves as people of the way. Because they said, look, we want to point people to Jesus, who is the way. And we ourselves are living our lives in the way. And we want to follow, to persevere, to keep following this way to eternal life. So this way is what is being described here. And Paul, Saul, is on his way to imprison, to kill, to do whatever he can against the people of the way, against believers in Jesus. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And we know from his other accounts that this is around noontime. So this is in the middle of the day, bright sunlight, right? And a light flashes around him that is somehow brighter than even the sun. And it says, he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? All through the scriptures, and especially in the Gospel of Luke, we saw that Jesus is not just the way, the truth, the life, but he refers to himself as the light of the world. He refers to himself as the one that when people see him, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Here is Saul in the middle of the day, physically bright, but spiritually in darkness. And what has to be coming into his life? What has to intervene? What has to confront him? Light. Jesus has to confront him. And so Saul says, Saul sees this light, falls to the ground, hears a voice, and he hears Jesus say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Not why do you persecute the church? Why do you persecute those that belong to the way? Not why do you persecute those who are not believing like you? He says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He replied, 
Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. We talked just a second ago about the fact that the book of Acts is speaking about the ministry of Jesus, the continued ministry of Jesus. And in the establishment of the church, Jesus is speaking about the church, the body of Christ, the believers, as synonymous with himself. He says, you're persecuting me. The men traveling there with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days, he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. He was praying and fasting. But here's the thing. We will read later in Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 26, where Paul himself speaks of this encounter. So we're not going to go into a lot of detail today, but it's this dramatic event, right? This light shines. Paul is blinded by the light as such. He opens his eyes, but he cannot see. They lead him to Damascus. He's there. And in Damascus, continuing in verse 10, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, this murderous, persecuting man who was on his way to destroy them, Ananias goes and lays his hands on him and says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, so this is about three years, actually, and we, need, we know that from reading in Galatians chapter 1, verses 17 through 20. There was a conspiracy. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. 
Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to, ki to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas, remember we had read about Barnabas, the son of encouragement, the one who was following the Lord, who goes out and he, who he, he's led of the Lord, full of faith, full of a man, full of the Holy Spirit. Barnabas took him and brought him, brought Paul, brought, brought Saul to the apostles. And we, again, in Galatians chapter 1, we see that he meets with Peter and with John, oh, pardon me, Peter and with James. He told them, Barnabas told them, how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus, where he was from. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Last week, in Acts chapter 8, we were looking or we were learning about the Ethiopian eunuch, the African court official who was prepared by God to receive the gospel message through Philip, believed what was explained to him, and he was baptized. In general, this is how most people come to know about and then believe in the Lord Jesus. Right? In Romans chapter 10, verses 11 through 15, the Bible says, Anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written... How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So you read that scripture, you see the accounts in the Gospels, you see what's going on in the history of the church, and we understand that we are commissioned by God to share the Gospel. People then hear the good news about Jesus. They believe. They call upon the name of the Lord. They are saved. This week, as we're looking at Paul's conversion, it's a much more unusual conversion account. Much more, con you know, where, where he, it's not a human being that's preaching to him. He must have known something about what these followers of the way believed in, which is why he's opposed to them, which is why he thinks that it's an it's a affront, it's, a, it's in contradiction to Jewish law to the law of God, and with his, all his zeal, he's coming against these people. So he must have known something about what they believed, but it's not clear that anybody has preached the gospel to him. So it's not that Saul was having somebody preach to him and tell him about Jesus. It is Jesus himself who directly speaks to Paul, directly speaks to Saul, right? 
And Jesus himself dramatically intervenes and transforms Saul's life. So Saul's conversion experience is atypical. And yet, yet, if you think about that and you say, well, it was so different, it was so dramatic. Maybe that's what I need. Maybe that's what this person needs. Oh God, speak to that person dramatically. Intervene in their life. Shine a light around them. Let them confront you miraculously. Then they'll believe. You know, and we, we may pray for that and those kinds of events. But you know what? Saul's conversion is not atypical. It is very similar to every other conversion in these three important points. Saul was a sinner. Saul was blind to the truth. And Saul was saved by the grace of God. That's the same thing we want for everybody. It's not the means. It's not this light. It's not this event that is what we're focused on. What we are focused on when we share the good news of the gospel of Jesus is that we are all sinners in need of a savior. We're all sinners in need of someone forgiving our sins and paying the price and redeeming us from our sin. And we were blind. We were in our darkness. We lived in that realm, the kingdom of darkness. We need the light to shine into our hearts, to shine into our lives, to open our eyes. We need this light of God. And it is the grace of God that saves us, not our own works, not the persuasive power of other people, not some dramatic event. It is the grace of God at work in our hearts, preparing us in, in, and speaking to us and showing us and saying to us, this is the way, walk in it. I am the way, believe in me. And that is what we want to pray for. So we look at this incident and we should take from it, oh, okay, here's what's happening with Saul that just as well needs to happen with everybody else. I want to pray for that. If God chooses to deal directly, personally, supernaturally in somebody's life, great, wonderful. But most importantly, let them be saved. Let them know Jesus personally. All around the world today, we hear multiple incidents and just these testimonies of God speaking and Jesus appearing, visions, dreams, dramatic events, things of that nature. And I can't tell you what the, what the reasons exactly are as to one person having a dramatic and very miraculous encounter and one person not. I can't tell you what the exact difference there is. But praise God that he does it. Praise God that this man, Saul, whom nobody would have been willing to go to and speak because they were afraid of him. Even after he started confessing Jesus, they were afraid of him. Nobody probably would have said, okay, I'm going to go and talk to Saul today on my to-do list. Talk to Saul, right? They wouldn't have had that. Jesus intervenes directly. Jesus speaks to him and he says, let me tell you what I have in purpose and plan for you. But when we do that, when we see this work that God is doing, God brings about a new beginning in Saul in the same way that he brings about a new beginning for anyone who will trust and accept him. You see, what God did in bringing this new beginning in Saul's life and in our lives is that God accounts for our past by his mercy and forgiveness. 
You know, when the disciples in Damascus heard that Saul was heading their way, how do you think they prayed? They heard that Saul is coming. He's got these letters. He's got all this power, authority. He's got all these people. He's coming. What do you think they prayed for? Oh, God, stop this evil man. Oh, God, please rescue us. Oh, God, intervene. Do something, God. But do you think they would have prayed and said, oh, God, on the way to Damascus, on that road, confront him, convert him? I don't think so. Most probably, they didn't pray for that. They just couldn't even believe that it could happen that way. Right? They probably, most probably, didn't think of this as a possibility, that Saul could be saved, that Saul could be converted. So when they eventually heard that Saul was converted and was now preaching the gospel himself, they were extremely suspicious. They're suspicious of his motives. They're fearful that he's tricking them. You know, maybe he's trying to get in. He's trying to pretend that he's a believer, get in, find out what the church is about, and then, you know, I mean, that happens. It happens in countries where Christians are not allowed to worship freely. There are all sorts of things that are going on. They were afraid that there was some sort of hidden agenda. And there may have been at least some in the church who even when they heard that Saul had been converted, they would have said to themselves, but he needs to pay. He did some awful things. I mean, he was, he was just a bad guy. And he needs to pay. But you know what caused Saul to be received as a brother by Ananias, by the disciples and Damascus and Arabia, Syria, by Barnabas. What caused all of these people, Peter, James, the other disciples then, what caused them ultimately to receive Saul was because they understood the mercy and forgiveness of God. You see, it wasn't against people that Saul had sinned. It was against Jesus that Saul had sinned. It was against, or it was Jesus that Saul was persecuting. And when Jesus deals with him, Jesus, it was Jesus that forgives him, that calls him to himself. And these disciples, the church, recognized that. They said, oh, it's not for us to hold this offense against Saul, because the one that he was coming against has forgiven him. The one that he was persecuting, persecuting has given his life for him. The one who he was coming in his ignorance and his darkness and his hatred and everything else coming against him has given his, his Holy Spirit to fill Saul, baptized in the Holy Spirit, baptized and converted in water. Jesus himself has done this. And so the church says, oh, we receive him because Jesus has received him. Many times 
we are unwilling to give people a new beginning because even after God has received them to himself, because we don't truly understand the nature of God's mercy and forgiveness, we don't give them a new start, a new beginning, we don't treat them in that way because we are still focused on the past. God forgets the past. We hold on to it. We are reluctant for the slate to be wiped clean on their behalf. We'd like for them to bear the consequence of their action. We seek retribution. We fear that if we forget their past, they won't learn from their mistakes. We've got to remind them. We've got to tell them this is what you did because they won't learn from their past mistakes. We fear if we, if we don't remind them of their sin, they will do it again. We fear that they will hurt themselves. We fear that they will hurt us. We feel that we should act on God's behalf to convict of sin and to mete out some punishment. But Jesus doesn't do any of that. You know, when Jesus confronts Saul, he doesn't say, you know, all these years, months, whatever period of time, you know, that you've been persecuting the church. Oh, terrible things, Saul, terrible things, but I forgive you. He doesn't even refer to it. He says, he says, you, Saul, you're going to suffer, but you're not going to suffer because of your sins. You're going to suffer for my name's sake. Jesus calls us to himself in the way that Isaiah 43, 18 and 19 says, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. It's Paul now, Saul now, speaking about what Jesus is doing. And he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When Saul writes that, is he speaking about somebody else? Oh no, he experienced this. He understood what Jesus was doing. He understood how the past had been erased. And he said, oh behold, all things are made new in Christ Jesus. You're a new creation. And so that's why, even as we've been learning in the past few weeks, when we are truly transformed, when our hearts are right with God, when our sins were as red as scarlet, they are washed as white as snow. Oh, we rejoice and we say, oh God, you have done this. You have done this. What better option could there be for us when we can rejoice in the new beginning that God brings to us when he brings us to himself and he 
accounts for our past. God does this. And then because he does that, God defines our present and our future by his calling and his direction in our lives. You see, the Lord said to Ananias, verse 15 there that we read, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Go, lay your hands on him, do this, because he is my chosen instrument. God has a specific plan and a specific purpose for each and every one of us. His calling is not just for the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. His calling is not limited to those who are gifted, those who have the right personality, those who have the right temperament, those who are extroverted and can go and share the gospel. His calling is not limited to people like this. And his calling is not limited to those who prove themselves worthy. Look at all that I've done, Lord. Ever since I was a believer, I have done these particular things. Then God says, okay, now let you, now you can go and do this. No, he's not doing that. He's not saying that. God treats every one of us as his chosen instrument. He desires for every one of us to be led by the Holy Spirit down the path, down the way that we must follow. The specific path that is meant for our lives. And he says, I want to lead you. I want to guide you. And as he equips and empowers us for that journey, he sends others to minister to us. He brings the right people to partner with us. He leads us to proclaim his name. You see, a victorious Christian life in the present that prepares us for a glorious life in the future is possible only because the same God that provides a new beginning in our lives by his mercy also provides everything we need for life and godliness throughout our life. He doesn't just make us a new creation and say, you're on your own. He says, I make you a new creation and I am with you. I give you my spirit. I give you my power. I give you my truth. I give you my promises. And I give you myself, my presence with you so that you may live this life out in this new way. Not according to the old man. So that's why God who accounts for our past, God who defines our present and our future by his calling and his leading, gives us a fresh start by uniting us in his body. We've been seeing consistently, and this is again what I've been saying when I say that we want to reignite our passion for the church. God doesn't call us to isolated lives. God calls us to be part of a body. Why is the local church so important? 
Why is it necessary for us to meet with fellow brothers and sisters, fellow believers, those who are of one mind and of one accord? Why is it necessary for us to come together in corporate celebration, in corporate worship? Why is it necessary for us to pray together in agreement? Why does God bring us into relationships? Why not make us a new creation, give us of himself, lead us, guide us, strengthen us, and say, you're good. Now you're in heaven. Instead, he puts us into this family of God, into this fellowship of faith, into this community. And he says, I want you to connect with these people and all oh, that's tough. All these people that were not willing to receive you, all these people that are suspicious of you, all these people that are afraid of you, all these people that are not quite sure how to deal with you and don't really even understand all the things that God is doing in your life. Oh, I have to go and deal with them? I mean, isn't that... God, I love you. And, I, and I'm learning from your word. Isn't that enough? You and me, God, we can do it. We can be good. But no, God says, I want you to go and to be with these people. God directs Saul and others in terms of how they have to interact with each other. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 7 says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. When God gives us a new beginning, when we walk in the ways of the Lord, he desires for us to be rightly connected in the body of Christ, where every member does its part, so that we, individually and therefore collectively, can fulfill God's calling and purpose for our lives. We need each other. You think you have an enemy in the church, outside the church, in your family, in your workplace, somewhere? Enemies, those who don't like you, those who are against you, those who are doing something, guess what? God's desiring for you to be united, to be connected, to be related to that person, to demonstrate the love of God, to demonstrate how God can bring you in, in fellowship with one another. Because if he's able to make even your enemies at peace with you, oh, he's able to make the body of Christ to know each other and to love each other. Who have you been at odds with? Who have you kept at arm's length? Because you said, oh, not sure. Maybe a spouse, maybe a child, maybe a colleague, maybe a neighbor. You said, oh, can't do it, can't do it. But you know, I want you to notice that our focus is not on making our enemies to be at peace with us. We don't go to them and convince them. We don't say, how dare you not love me? How dare you do this to me? You know what the Bible said there in that verse? Our focus is on ensuring that our ways please the Lord. When we walk in the way, he makes our enemies to dwell at peace with us. 
not you. You focus on being in the way, on walking with him, on following hard after him. And that's why, you know, when we get back to Acts chapter 9, verse 31, the last verse that we read in this passage, we're closing. It says, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. You want to see growth in the church? You want to see growth in the family of God? You want to see the growth in our relationships? You want to see the family coming together, your own family, the church family, the family worldwide of God? You want to see them coming together? Guess what? Live in the way. Live in the fear of God and be full of the Holy Spirit, encouraged by the Holy Spirit, lifted up in God. Because you see here, living in the fear of the Lord, it's what Moses talked about all the way back in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 20. When the people, the children of Israel, saw God coming down on the mountain and smoke and loud thunder and lightning, and they were afraid. And Moses says to them, do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you. And in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. Don't be afraid so that the fear of God will be in you. Sounds contradictory, doesn't it? The world will say, what does that mean? But you know, God has exactly, knows exactly what that means. Do not be afraid of what this world will do to you. Do not be afraid of COVID. Do not be afraid of all the things that may happen. Do not be afraid. But let the fear of the Lord be in you. That you would walk in his ways and you would say, Oh God, I do not want to be displeasing you. I do not want to be in rebellion against you. I do not want to take for granted this grace that you have shown me. I do not want to abuse the privileges that you have given. Oh, Lord God, I do not want to hurt you, grieve you. Oh, Lord God, let your will be done in my life that I may be pleasing to you, that my ways would be pleasing to you. Let the fear of the Lord be in me, the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom, the fear of the Lord that keeps me in this path, that keeps me from sin. Hallelujah. And when we do that, as we've been reminding ourselves continuously, continually, when we're filled by the Spirit, there is no room for something else. How do you encourage yourself in the Lord? How do you encourage? How, do you, how are you encouraged and, and prompted to keep going? When you're full of the Spirit when you're full of anxiety, when you're full of fear, when you're full of ego, when you're full of yourself, how will you encourage yourself? What will you draw from? I've got enough money. I've got enough health. I've got enough connections. Is that what you're going to encourage yourself with? Oh, the things around me may be uncertain, but I'll be okay. I'm a self-made man. 
Is this the way that you will encourage yourself? None of that works. It may for a brief season. It can't forever. But when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we're able to say, oh Lord God, in you, in you, I have life. In you, I have peace. In you, I have joy. In you, I have hope. And in you, because you are living in me, I bear that fruit. And oh Lord God, I enjoy this abundant life that you have given me. I take no thought for tomorrow. I'm not anxious about anything. I don't run after all these material things, but I seek first your kingdom, your righteousness. And oh God, you are good. You are kind. You are loving. Oh, when we, when we respond to the Lord in those ways, oh, we are encouraged. Right? We are happy. We are joyful. We are able to face anything that is before us. It's not because the Holy Spirit says to us, everything will be smooth now. No, the Holy Spirit says, you're going to suffer. But you'll suffer for my name. And we go, yes, Lord. We praise you. We worship you. You see, the way that we respond to this word is by saying, oh, Lord God, we look forward. We don't look at the past. We're not held back by our own past. We're not looking to somebody else's past. We look to you. We look ahead. We look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And we say, oh, Lord God, you lead me in the way eternal, in your way. I look to you. We respond by looking forward. That's where the Lord is leading us. And we apply by living in the fear of the Lord and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We apply by living in the fear of the Lord and in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That's our reality. That's what the Lord is calling us to. You know, and every Sunday morning we remember and we are blessed and so on. But even before I close out this, this message and pray, I want to remind you that every Sunday morning I put up this thing to remind us that we are to die to self and to be raised up in new life in Christ Jesus. That's not just a one-time thing, but that every day we would say, your mercies are new to me every day. Your loving kindness is new to me every day. You're looking at me new. You're looking at me with fresh eyes and to say, oh, I see you as, as if you have never sinned. Oh, thank you, Lord, that that's new to me. That is, that is new for me every single day. And so I come to you, Lord Jesus. And maybe I have not been walking with you. Maybe I've done things to grieve you. Maybe there's been even something in the recent past, maybe even yesterday and today, that I ask, oh, God, I shouldn't have done this. But you know what? We are putting to death the sinful nature with its passions and desires. We are crucifying those things of the flesh with Christ Jesus. And then we are raised up to new life in Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you that, Lord, just as Saul had, each one of us have 
a new beginning. Father, this morning, for everybody who is listening to this word, for this, to this message, and who has not experienced a new beginning in you, we pray, Lord, that even before the week is through, Lord, as quickly as possible, that, Lord, there will be a word that is spoken. There will be a person that comes. There will be a direct intervention of God, whatever means is necessary, that, Lord, people would know you. People would know your word. People would come to you. There would be a new beginning. And, Lord, for those that have enjoyed, we have experienced that new beginning, that new start, that being made a new creation in Christ Jesus, Lord, for every one of us who has done that, let us not return to our past. Let us not return to the darkness. Let us not fall away, but let us remain in this new life that you have given us. Thank you, Jesus, that, Lord, every time we read these stories and these accounts, we are reminded of what you are doing. You are the one that, Lord, has given us new life. We praise you for it. We are so grateful. Thank you, Jesus. Let us now live out our the rest of our days in the fear of the Lord and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Every Sunday morning, I want to speak a word of blessing over you. And this morning, from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24, and Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 to 14, I want to speak a word of new blessing or new beginnings, a blessing of new beginnings over you. So let's just stand together. You can receive this word in whichever ways that the Lord prompts you. But as I read this, as I speak this, I pray that you will receive it be blessed in this week, in this, in the last few days of this year, and as we look forward to a new year, may you, with regard to your former way of life, put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, may you press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called you heavenward in Christ Jesus. God bless you. Go in peace.